June 8th, 2002. 22 miles north of Colorado Springs, Colorado is a woman named Terry Barton. Terry is a 38-year-old woman who is in the middle of what will be come a messy divorce with her husband, John. John is an unpleasant man. He's an alcoholic. He is abusive and he is maddening. And he's written a letter to Terry and she reads the letter and like most of his communication, it's aggravating to her and angering to her. So in response to the aggravation of this letter, she's like, I'm just going to burn this letter. And so she takes out a match, strikes a match, sets the letter on fire and takes some satisfaction, I'm sure, and dropping it into the fire ring there right in front of her. Never to think of this letter again. Except she was in the middle of Pike National Forest in Colorado, and the National Weather Service had issued a red flag, zero burn warning, no open flames whatsoever. And as that letter fell into the fire ring, a just a very slight wind came and took one ember from that letter and dropped it onto the dry forest floor besides the fi- beside the fire ring. And 138,000 acres later of burned forest, known as the Haman's Fire, which was the biggest fire in history of Colorado at that point. So 138,000 acres, for reference, is the whole complex and, and uh footprint of Lucas Oil Stadium and the surrounding parking lot times 11,500. Okay. She was sentenced to six years in prison and $14.8 million fine, which she's, of course, never going to pay off. It's just garnished from her wages forever. So massive destruction from a single spark of ill-thought-out anger. That single spark from that letter was disproportionately powerful. It, was, it ended up much bigger than it started out. It was disproportionately destructive. There are things in our life that are surprisingly powerful and destructive, disproportionately so to what we think they might be. Repeatedly through the Scripture, and today in the Scripture we're going to look at, one of the things the Scripture tells us is disproportionately powerful is our speech our words, our mouth, or as the scripture says today, our tongue. Our tongue is disproportionately powerful. Now, the good news is it can be disproportionately powerful for good. The warning, however, is it is more quickly disproportionately powerful for destruction and uh, bad. Now, the Bible talks about this all the way through the book of Proverbs. It's especially robust with warnings about speech. I put in your insert here at the top, Proverbs 18.21, which says, death and life are in the power of the tongue. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. Now, when we say the phrase death and life, we tend to, tend to say life and death. But this proverb says death and life. And I don't know why, but probably because that's what happens first with, the, with our speech, right? We kill first. Then we say, oh, I'm sorry. But death and life are in the power of the tongue. I don't know if that's the case, but here's what we know. I put this in red at the top of your insert. Though death is in the power of the tongue, we have capacity to, to do such damage with our speech, and all of us have done it. Though death is in the power of the tongue, the Lord can redeem our speech to be a life-giving good. Though death is in the power of the tongue, the Lord can redeem our speech to be a life-giving gift. 
but it's only by the power of his grace and only as we face the real power of death that is in our tongue that this happens. Speech is one of the ways all of us here reflect or image God. God is a speaking God. He speaks creation into existence. I don't think he had to speak creation into existence. He, he's omnipotent. He could have thought creation into existence, but he chooses to create by speaking, and then in that, with that same faculty of speech in his word, he tells us that that's how he did it. In fact, the in Bible, it's called the word of God, or 2 Timothy 3.16, the breathed out or the spoken out word of God to his people. So speaking is a way those in his likeness or made in his image reflective. God speaks, we speak, and just as God's words have power to create or correct or judge, human words have power to create, correct, judge, not nearly as powerful as God, but it does reflect God's power in this way. And it can be powerfully good. If you look in your insert at the very bottom, I, I put James 1, uh, a section from James 1 that we saw a couple weeks ago in there. It says this, of his own will, God brought us forth, his people, by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. And then down a few verses later. If anyone thinks he is religious or faithful and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's faithfulness is worthless. So what this is saying is like, by the power of the Spirit, God has made his people. If you're in Christ, you've been created to be part of the new world, the world that began at Jesus' resurrection in part and will be completed at his return. We are, as it were, a foretaste of the coming world. And one place this can show up, particularly powerful for the people of God, is in our speech. We can speak as if we know that we've been rescued from destruction and placed in uh, this status of being part of this new creation. But it's super hard. That's why you have that illustration of the bridle there. A bridle is a headgear used to control a horse. It's really hard to control the tongue. Then James 3 that we're looking at this morning is about the incredible power of speech. And it starts with a warning to those who speak sort of like officially as representatives of the Lord in the local church. Pastors, so me, (laughs) Taylor. You teach officially. Look at verse 1 of James 3. How's this for an encouragement? Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers. For you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Hope. For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. This is a warning not to become teachers. Now remember the context. The church has been dispersed from Jerusalem and there's little pockets of churches that are being started. And, but also the gospel is multiplying. The kingdom is expanding. So other churches are popping up. So you might think uh, James would be like, everybody should become teachers, plant more churches, yay, yay, yay. And he's like, no, hold on. Not many of you should become teachers. This is a biblical uh, value of quality over quantity. <laughs> hold on. Not many of you should become teachers because you will be judged by a stricter measure. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean that you guys are judged because of the righteousness of Christ? 
You're not judged for your sin. Jesus is judged for your sin, and you're free. But Taylor and I and our campus ministers, they're judged, we're judged by what we say. You know, that's our eternal destiny. That, fortunately, is not what this is saying. I'm thankful. Uh, is this, we're just held to a different standard. Right? It's a, it's a biblical principle that to whom much is given, much is required. This is more about evaluation, not eternal judgment, being evaluated more stringently. Those who speak officially are evaluated by the world more stringently, by the church more stringently, evaluated by the Lord more stringently. And uh, I'm going to take pause here and do something I've never done before. I'm, uh, you see all these books up here, all these books. Joe Sugimura said, how long is your sermon today? Um, <laughs> So, uh, and part of the reason teachers are judged so strictly is because teaching is so potent in the body of Christ and so important and so shaping. One of the, and maybe the most contemporary author that's been shaping to me and many of you is a man named Tim Keller. Most of you will know that Tim Keller died this week on Friday. Some of you have never heard of him perhaps. I can't, there's prob- I think the list is about 20 to 24 people who emailed me, texted me, or talked in person to me and said, it's so weird, I've never met the man, but I was crying on Friday when I heard that. And Carmen and I did too. Why? Because teach, it's, it's good that not many become teachers, but it's good that some do, right? And so like I've got a list here. These, this is just a, a stack these are books that Keller's written. In fact, the latest one is still at home on my desk. It's called Forgive, uh, which I'm not all the way through it. Now, I have a, a thousands of books, and a lot of you say, hey, have you read all those books? I'm like, of course not. Who would read all their books? I've read all the Keller's books. They're very, very good. Uh, a couple I just want to recommend. If you've not read Keller, all his uh, sermons are now free on a place called Gospel and Life. This book is probably the most shaping book that he's written for me. It's just called Prayer. It's about prayer. It's very good. And I was particularly encouraged because he really didn't be taken to take prayer deeply seriously until he was 50. I mean, it's remarkable. I'm thankful for that. The Meaning of Marriage, fantastic book on marriage. Keller had the ability to, he wasn't squishy. He was very orthodox and held unpopular opinions, otherwise known as historical Christianity, about things like, uh, the sovereignty of God and hell and the role of men and women and sexuality. He was completely orthodox in that. Was not squishy at all. Was not a progressive at all in any of these things, yet spoke kindly. So that even when people would disagree with him, they would say, I don't agree with that guy, but I do like him, right? A good model for all of us to show that we don't have to be squishy. We can just be loving and let the chips fall where they may. This is a great book. Reason for God, this is a fantastic book on the reason for God. You hear so many people say, I had all these questions and nobody addresses them. Stop it. These are all addressed right in here, okay? And if they're not addressed in this one, they're addressed in this one called Making Sense of God. So don't let anybody say to you, I had all these questions and nobody in Christianity ever addressed them. They're addressed all the time. Two great places they're addressed are in this book and in this book. Okay, I won't, well, I'll go on a couple more. Okay, so... Uh, uh, counterfeit gods. It's about idolatry, right? We are idolaters. This just shows us how, right? Uh, The prodigal God. This is about rooting out the the dangers of legalism in our own life. And uh, maybe what else? What else? Okay. Um, 
This is a great book on preaching, but it's not just about preaching. It's about communicating and reading the Bible. Okay, so I've got a couple books here I'm going to give away. I'm going to give away two books in this service and two books in the next service. So here we go. Who has read Keller's, by show of hands, by show of hands, who's ever read a book by Keller or heard a sermon by Keller, by show of hands? Okay, nice. Who has read the book, The Reason for God? Cool. Now, I know, I say read the book. I don't mean read every word, but just get the gist. Who would be willing to read the book if they had it for free? Okay, I see right here. That's the first hand I saw. Now, you have to read the book. Will you read the book? You promise. All right. Now, this is a book called Preaching, Communicating Faith in an Age of Skepticism. It's not just about preaching. In fact, our entire worship music team read this book together. It's about also applying the gospel to our own life. Who would read this book if I gave it to them for free? Okay, I, okay so I saw Noel's hand first. You will share it with your mom and dad, yes? All right, all right. Thank you. Okay, actually, one. this is a book, uh, Spiritual and Intellectual Formation by, of Timothy Keller by Colin Hansen. If you want this one for free, come to the next service. <laughs> you can buy it out in the foyer if you know. So there's got to be some for the second service. I can't just penalize people for coming to the second service. But uh, I just put these up here to commend them to you. I've never done that before, but this was a uh, uh, great brother in the Lord, his wife, Kathy Keller, uh, if you know, Jeb and Ann Gaither who know the Kellers say, everybody says Kathy's the smart one. So I uh, like everything she writes is fantastic as well. It is a, uh, a loss to the body of Christ, but I'm thankful that some become teachers. And those words are deeply powerful, and that's why the rest should be very cautious. And I, I remember hearing Keller one time say he didn't write anything until he was like 50 years old because he didn't want to have to rewrite things. (laughs) There's a circumspection that needs to be with those who communicate, right? Because language and speech is so, so powerful. And it's possible. So this is one illustration I got from Keller years ago about this concept as I was considering becoming a, a preacher. What does it mean that we're judged with more strictness? And it's kind of like this. If you've got, if you're a parent and you have two kids that are fighting like a 12-year-old and a 5-year-old and they're fighting together over something petty, you're like, in all your parenting wisdom, say something like this. Stop it. (laughs) And you pull them aside. You say, don't do that. You talk to the 12-year-old. You say, okay, you're both wrong, but you're more wrong. You know better. You're older. You've had seven more years of lectures from me. You know better. You're in some ways more guilty. Your, your status in our home isn't changed. I love you just the same. My affection toward you isn't any different, but come on, man. You know better. That's what I take this to be. It's possible for those who have been taught and trained and to speak to grieve the Lord in a different way with our speech. And we're in relationship with the Lord. We don't want to grieve him. There's an accountability that's had because language is so important. And then it goes on. Okay, this, that, was a, that was a specific application. Now it's generalized to everybody here. Verse 3. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. 
Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. There's a principle in economics called the principle of factor sparsity. That means in any system, a few inputs will have a disproportionately large impact on the outcomes. A few inputs lead to a lot of outputs. It's also called, you might have heard it as the Pareto Principle from the Italian economist Valfredo Pareto who wrote in 1896 about this because he realized that 80% of Italy's land was owned by 20% of its people. So it was a, a few people own most of the land, right? And he began to look at all these systems in the world and that was, that was common across a lot of things. Principle of factor sparsity. A sparse, a, a sparse number of factors have a disproportionate output like... A few people own most of the wealth. It's not new. It's always been that way in history. 80% of speech in any language is made up of approximately 20% of the words. 80% of words in most language goes unused. If you have a stock portfolio, about 20% of your stocks will be about 80% of your profit. In a business, 20% of customers make up 80% of the sales. 20% of salesmen make up 80% of the revenue. 20% of criminals commit 80% of the crime. In the church, like all pastors know this, ready? 20% of people give 80% of the budget. Is that true in New City? Yes, it is, pretty much. It's not exactly 80-20, but a few give most. In most churches, 20% of the people do 80% of the work. Is that true? Generally, it is. 20% of the people give 80% of the complaints. Is that true? Yes, it is. <laughs> are those, are, is that related to the group that is doing all the work? It is usually not. <laughs> Uh, so if you give a complaint and we ignore you, just understand why. Um, a few things are disproportionately impactful. Speech is disproportionately powerful. The illustration given here are horses and ships. A horse, a Clydesdale, you see on the Anheuser-Busch commercials, are over six feet tall, 2,200 pounds. I'm not going to stop a Clydesdale from going where it wants to go. Taylor's not going to stop a Clydesdale from going where it wants to go. But a kid on the back of a Clydesdale with the reins, with a 20-ounce bit in that Clydesdale's mouth, will direct it wherever he or she wants that Clydesdale to go. A ship, however big it is, is directed by a rudder. The, the, the average relation of surface area of a rudder to a ship is about one-half of 1%. One to put that in perspective for you, about the, these four, the front of these four fingers is about one-half of 1% one of the surface area of your body. So all of our body being directed by just this little bit of us, disproportionate impact, a rudder steers a ship, Bit steers a horse, and words steer our life. That's what this is saying. And here in verse 5, we have, uh, there's two categories of speech in this passage that are, that are challenged. The first is boasting. The second is cursing. Verse 5, so also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. Boasting. Boasting in Scripture means um, to make much of, to elevate, to magnify. What this is telling us is that 
what we boast in has an outsized directional influence on our life. What we boast in has an outsized directional influence on our life. Now, why such boasting? The Bible tells us. Since the Garden of Eden, since sin corrupts and curses this world and twists everything, some things greatly, some things a little bit, all things some, all of us touched, twisted, marred, and scarred by sin. Since that day, we have been lacking something and we have been seeking it. We have been seeking a wholeness, a completeness, a rightness to get us back to creation. The Bible calls that rightness by another name, righteousness, righteousness, wholeness, completeness, and we all seek it. And the New Testament makes clear there are two paths of pursuing righteousness. One, we can receive it freely from Jesus as a gift. This is the gospel. Imagine that. You can receive complete rightness and wholeness and righteousness from Christ as a gift. The other path is what all of us are inclined to do sometimes, and those outside of Christ, this is the set of the sale. And this path has a million little paths off it, but it's all off one path that is seeking rightness ourself, or self-rightness, or self-righteousness. Building a righteousness of our own. A presentation of ourself that is pursued, defended, protected, and justified at all costs, at all times. And then everyone else is a threat to this or a source of it if they like affirm us. And in this process, we will like band together with others who are like us and criticize the other guys who are not like us because in criticizing the other guys, the other tribe who's not like us, we feel justified. Yes. But eventually, even the guys who are like us are other guys too because they're not exactly like us. And there can only be one who's completely righteous at the end of the day if we're doing it ourselves, and that's us. That's why almost all ideological movements eventually eat their own, right? Radically liberal, radically conservative, they eat their own. They, movements that aren't centered in the gospel of Jesus eat their own. Theological movements, when they lose sight of Jesus, eat their own. Radically conservative, radically liberal, loose out of Jesus, turn on each other, devour each other in an attempt at self-righteousness. The tongue plays a central role in this by what it's called, it says here, is boasting. Making much of, exalting, boasting in ourselves. This could be, this is not a comprehensive list, but self-aggrandizing speech. Drawing attention to ourselves so that others respect us, love us, or respond to us in the way we want. Speaking so that we will sound smart before other people. Using our speech to defend or justify ourselves. Using our speech to compare favorably to other people using our speech because we have a high opinion of our opinion and we want everybody else to know our opinion and have a high opinion of that opinion, a.k.a. talking a whole lot. You can see why pastors like particularly, you know, it's dangerous for them. It could be lying to preserve ourselves, selecting a few things out of events that happen to put ourselves in a particular light so that we can present ourselves as right 
righteous for others? Or maybe, maybe you're the type who says, oh, I don't do any of that because I don't say anything. Maybe it's not speaking so we can preserve ourselves because we don't want to look a certain way. And then a whole lot of other things. But the, the warning here, the point is that if we are intent on boasting in ourselves and preserving our own righteousness, it will direct the entire course of our life. It's disproportionately powerful. What we boast in has an outsized directional power in our life. Now, you might think the solution is like, let's not boast at all. That's not the solution. The Bible gives us a solution. What does redemption of speech look like? Not, not boasting, but boasting in something else. Making much of something else. Exalting something else. Magnifying something else. What if, what if we were free? What if we were completely free? What if Jesus Christ was our righteous, our full righteousness? We just receive that as a gift. What if everything we're seeking in using our mouth to build up ourselves or to crush down somebody else, what if everything we were seeking in our project of self-righteousness is actually given freely as a gift by Jesus and in Jesus? That's the gospel, friends. Like, why do we boast? Why was it that you spun, forget you, why was it that the last time I had a conversation when I selected something out of a situation to put myself in a little bit more positive light and functionally lied by excluding some truth, why did I do that? In that moment, I was not resting in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. We, that's what's offered to us in the gospel. Now, if you're not in Christ, I want you to know that's on offer. If you are in Christ, you know what happens. We forget it all the time. And we know we're forgetting it when we use our, our language to defend ourselves or to build ourselves up. That's the warning of this passage. I know well what this is. I do it all the time. You don't have to turn there. Let me just read. This is deep in the Old Testament. Jeremiah 9, 23, thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom or the mighty man boast in his might or the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth, for in these things I delight, declares the Lord. So instead of boasting in ourselves, we just boast in the Lord. Psalm 34, we read it for our call to worship. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. The humble will hear and be glad. The apostle Paul, who had this great pedigree and great ability, he would tell us like, but now in Christ, my pedigree doesn't mean anything. My accomplishments don't mean anything. And the, the rotten things I did don't mean anything. He says in Galatians 6, but far be it for me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. 1 Corinthians 1.31, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. 2 Corinthians 10.17, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Here's what we use our language for to make much of, to exalt and magnify. Here it is. I exalt, make much of, and magnify this reality, that Jesus Christ is my righteousness because of his life, death, and resurrection in my place. And this one who is raised from the dead has ascended to the right hand of the God Almighty and reigns from heaven, and from there he loves his people, and he loves me. That's what we boast in. That's what we boast in, that I have a righteousness, but not one I construct my own, one I received as a gift. Think about this. This magnifies the Lord. It sets us free and it blesses other people. 
Because now we can be free to encourage other people without thinking that like somehow it's a debit in our account because they're bigger. That's stupid thinking. And yet we engage in it all the time. We're free to be non-defensive in that if somebody criticizes us and they're right, we can say something like this. It's radical. You know you're right. I was wrong. Why can we say that? Because my righteousness is no longer in being right. It's in Christ. It's so freeing. And we can then lovingly challenge them because their opinion of us is not part of our righteousness either. And we can love them enough to say, brother, sister, friend, I see this in your life and it concerns me. I love you. Okay. The solution to boasting ourselves is boasting Christ and the freedom we have in the gospel. This continues, how great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire, verse six, and the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. You know, either James is really struggling or he's been really criticized. Words, as you know, from doing it and receiving it, can have a disproportionately destructive effect in our life. Years of nurturing a marriage can be undercut by a few harsh syllables. Kids can be in counseling for years because of a few things their parents said to them, even if the other communication was like neutral. Disproportionately powerful. Sets things on fire. And frankly, we live in a world that is dry kindling. Like it's almost like we want to be set on fire. Like gossip and accusation and destructive speech can spread like wildfire and like social media is like a hot desert wind just blowing on it. You know, just like making it flame up. We love it. So in the passage, Proverbs 18.21 that I quoted where it says death and life are in the power of the tongue. But just before that in Proverbs, it says this, Proverbs 18.8. The words of a gossip are like delicious morsels. They go down into the inner parts of the body. We like gossip. No, 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 don't, don't tell me that. That's gossip. What's that? What's that? <laughs> He'll be like, no, no, no. He's like, no, 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 please, please don't say that. You're like, oh, I shouldn't say this. How many times have you said this? This might be gossip. I shouldn't say this. But why? We like juicy morsels. It's like just good food. Mm, hard to say no. We keep coming back to it. Proverbs eighteen seventeen. Just after that, the one who states his first case, his the one who states his case first seems right, until the other comes to examine him. This has to do with slander. Namely, there are always two sides to a story. There are always two sides to a story. But if it's on Twitter, there's only one side. I am good friends with a man whose life was destroyed by an accusation that made it to Twitter, and it didn't matter if it was true. And he was fully exonerated of the affirmation, of the accusation, fully exonerated. And thousands of people on Twitter, including hundreds of pastors, never asked this question. I wonder if there's another side to this story. It's just a good story. Retweet. 
retweet, retweet, over and over and over again. And I'm sure that every time they're like, well, I don't know if this is true, but it's interesting, retweet. And every time that happened, they were party to destroying a family. We've got to ask this question when you hear something. I wonder if there's another side to the story. You know what? There always is. There's more to the story. In this particular case, when the other side of the story was heard before a court, it was like, oh, yeah, totally exonerated, 100% unanimous. Twitter doesn't care about the other side of the story. And your flesh doesn't either. We love to destroy people. We love juicy morsels. I love that in my flesh, the part of me that's in rebellion against God. The tongue is dangerous, and we all know it's hard to control. Look at verse 7. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not be so. Does a spring pour Pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water. Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond produce fresh water. Let me just zero in on one verse there. Verse 9, with it, the tongue, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. First category of speech is challenge, boasting. Second category here it is cursing others. That means just destructive speech. It doesn't mean like a hocus-pocus magic curse. It's just destructive speech. Why ought we not do this? It's given here. Every single person is made in the likeness of God or the image of God. It's creational ethics. People are made in God's image. They bear the divine image. Therefore, we, they, we should not destroy them. Everybody is marred and twisted because of sin. Let's not further destroy them. Everybody, no matter what they believe, deserves dignity because they are made in God's image. They ought not receive destructive speech from other people who bear God's image. This would be things like gossip, evil speech, slander, harshness, unwarranted accusation, imputing motives, divisive speech, sexually suggestive speech, to those not your spouse, uh, words that tear down and do not build up, and a whole host of other things. Cursing those made in the image of God. Now, we might think what, that what would this, the text would set in opposition to cursing those made in the image of God is like, don't do that. It said, bless them. That's not what it says. What we have is a, something deeper that leads to blessing others. The deep solution to cursing others. If you have trouble, you run people down. If you get in a fight with your spouse and all of a sudden you're a mean jerk, here's the solution. Bless our Lord and Father. Bless our Lord and Father. It's something deeper. This means adoration, praise, exaltation of God. Why is that? Think about what happens when we use, why we're using destructive speech against others. So often we do it to protect ourselves, to manage or control the future and present, to get our own way to make happen what we believe must happen right now, to bring vengeance or to set things right the way they should be set right now. That's why we do it. And we always think we're justified in the moment. It always makes sense what, what we're saying, why we're saying it. But what happens if we praise? Our gaze is moved. Our gaze is transfixed, as it says here, on a Lord Jesus and a God 
who is Father, who cares for us with a fatherly care. That means this. We see one who holds the future and holds us. As we gaze at him, we're convinced of his fatherly care and his power. One who knows better than us and holds us. We see one who is sovereign in power and holds us. We see one who who does make all things right eventually and holds us. We see one who allows hard things and holds us. We see one who goes through hard things with us and holds us. We see one who sees in the light even when we are in the dark and he holds us. So we don't have to with our words control, protect, make things happen or bring vengeance. Now this is an ongoing struggle in our life. Why is that? Well, verse 8 tells us, no human being can tame the tongue. <laughs> On Tuesday of this week, I was wrestling with something, a conf- I, I just a strategic thing for the church. I was spinning in my head, and I, any, anytime I go to bed that way, I realize I'm going to wake up at like 3 in the morning thinking about it. And I went to bed at 10 o'clock and woke up at 3.09 thinking about this thing. And I'm thinking, 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 thinking. And I thought to myself, I had this great insight from the Holy Spirit. You know, Roger, you know nothing. <laughs> you can't figure this out. But you know somebody who does the Lord. But then I couldn't stop thinking. So I said, you know what? I'm just going to get up and I'm going to spend some time seeking the Lord's face for this problem, trying to figure it out. So I got up. Now, I'm an early riser. Not usually that early, but it's great. It's so quiet. I got up. It was like 62 degrees, 64 degrees. Went out on the back porch. We had this, this uh, three seasons room. Opened up all the windows. It's beautiful. And I'm praying to the Lord. And I'm reading scripture and journaling. And I made a French press coffee. And it was so good. Like, it was a deep, rich time of worship. Like, if, if I could have spoken to somebody then, I would be really, because I was full of the spirit. I'm like, boy, but you know, nobody's awake at 3.15 to speak to them. I was ready, right? And so, but I stayed in that spot for like an hour, an hour and 15 minutes. It's 4.30 in the morning. And I was, I mean, I was, I was having a great time. I journaled, it's great. My son Joshua, whom I love, he's been getting up, he goes to the Y at 5 a.m. So he sets his alarm for 4.30 because he's been hitting the weights. And uh, so he, his, all the windows in the house are open because it's 65 degrees out. It's beautiful. And his alarm goes off. It is the single most annoying alarm in the Apple world. It's something like, ah, 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 woo, 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 ah, ah, ah. And uh, I sleep super light. Joshua, I mean, it goes on for like 25 seconds. Now, I, he's a deep sleeper. I can't fault him for that. But all the windows are open. It is so loud, I can hear it echoing off the other homes in the neighborhood. (laughs) What's happening? My self-righteousness as a good neighbor is being challenged. Like, shut that thing off. And finally, I can hear him get out of bed. Thud, thud, thud. Turn off. Like, thank the Lord. He usually doesn't do this, but he had just hit the snooze button. (laughs) And I didn't know that until nine minutes later. Another 25 seconds, I was with the Lord. I was like, 27 seconds after that, I was in the door of his room speaking harshly to this kid. I love this young man. 
But I'm with the Lord one second and speaking to my son in an unloving way the next. Why is that? Who contained the tongue? No human being contained the tongue. In our own flesh, we are powerless to tame the tongue. We need a power that is outside of us, that is disproportionately powerful to us, even though we know it's wrong to do this. Terry Barton, who started that fire accidentally, the Haman fire, the largest fire to that point in Colorado State history, uh, wasn't just in the forest. She was at work as a 20-year veteran of the U.S. Forest Service. That day, her job was fire patrol. She was out in the forest looking for people that had open flames to tell them is a total burn ban. If anyone knew the disproportionate power of a single flame, it was Terry Burton. Knowing things are destructive is not enough. Knowing things are destructive is not enough. We know that our speech can be destructive and we all know knowing that's not enough. We need a power that's outside of us. We need a deeper wisdom than our own. We need a deeper power than our own. We need something else, a disproportionate power. We have that in the gospel of Jesus. A disproportionate power wherein one Friday afternoon, only on one day, one man hangs on one cross and dies and gives us a disproportionately powerful word, one single word that changes all of creation and all of history. We translate it in English as three words, it is finished. It's one word in Greek, tetelestai, it is finished. That's the word we need. That's the word we have. As we hold to that word, we have something to boast in. As we hold to that word, we have something to praise. And it's by that means that God redeems our speech, which has the power of death, to make it a life-giving power. This is a constant fight for us, constant battle. We all know that. One of the ways Jesus gives us constant grace is in the communion table, wherein he communicates to us again and again and again, it is finished. You can boast in me. I've got you. If you're in Christ by faith, we're going to invite you to the communion table to strengthen you, to give you grace. I'm going to pray and then invite you to the table. The way we do that is we'll approach to the back, take a piece of bread and either red wine or white grape juice, bring it back to your seats, and we'll partake together. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, you finished the work for us. Your people who have faltering lips, even when we see the glories of the gospel, we often turn away and forget. But our turning away and forgetting you does not mean you turn away and forget us because you said it's finished, I've got you. We pray now as we come to the table that would be made vibrant to us all over again. In your name we pray and now come.